going to be reading from John 16 and John uh, 17. I'm going to read this out, but do follow along with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within me. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's great to be with all of you. And as we gather today in front of God's word, let's pray and ask for his blessing upon our time. Our Father, thank you for these glorious verses that we just read. And so now with Bibles open and this passage before us, we pray that you would open our hearts to see and experience Jesus, who's altogether lovely, and in whose name we pray. Amen. In this world, you will have trouble. Life is often hard, and sometimes it's unspeakably hard. On most days, there's some kind of challenge or hardship that you're facing. And on some days, those challenges and hardships feel suffocating and overwhelming. When we go through hard stuff, it impacts our faith. Sometimes suffering draws you closer to God. And other times, suffering makes God feel really far away, especially chronic suffering. I'm talking about the loneliness that you can't shake no matter how many times you put yourself out there and try to make friends. That illness that's always there and it's always hard to live with, but people have stopped asking you about it because you were diagnosed so long ago. That ongoing experience of sorrow that now hits you in unexpected waves for someone that you loved but is gone. C.S. Lewis, in one of his books, a memoir, it's titled A Grief Observed, wrote about watching his wife die of cancer, and then she did die. And in that book, his memoirs, he was reflecting on that experience, and specifically what going through that trial did to his faith. He gave voice to something that I've experienced personally, and I know many of you have too. He writes this, Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms of suffering in your spiritual life. You see, when you're happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, if you turn to him, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. 
But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face. Why is he so present, a commander in our time of prosperity, and so very absent a help in our time of trouble? Now that's a raw and pretty honest account of what suffering feels like. But what I found very interesting the first time I read that was as Lewis continued to process the impact of suffering on his spiritual life, this is where he landed. Listen to what he said. It's not that I'm in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is in coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion that I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but rather, so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. Again, an honest and raw account of what it feels like to suffer. But here's my question this morning. Here's a question that I think you need to be asking. It's the same question Lewis asked. Where is God? Where is Jesus and what's he doing right now? You see, often when we gather as Christians, we think about what Jesus did in the past, and that's critically important. But the question for us as we go through life and as we face the joys and the highs, and especially the sorrows and the lows... Where is Jesus and what's he doing right now? And the answer that the Bible gives to that question is that right now, at this moment, Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is praying for his church. He's praying for his people. Now, if you've been a Christian or if you've been coming to a church for any length of time, you know that one of the most common things Christians say is, oh, I'll be praying for you. Sometimes we say that because we don't know what else to say. And it's nice to know that people are praying for you. But you know what's even better? To actually hear somebody praying for you. Have you ever had that experience where someone talks to God with you and about you? It's a stunning thing. It's a humbling thing to be prayed for. And here's what I want to do for today's teaching. I want to show you first that Jesus is praying for you. But second, I want us to actually hear him praying for us. To hear what he's praying for us today, this morning. And then third, invite us to consider how do we respond to what Jesus is doing right now in praying for us. So that he's praying for us, hearing him pray, and how we can respond. First, that Jesus is praying for you. There aren't that many places in the Bible that talk about what Jesus is doing right now. But in all of the places that do, the thread that runs through them is simply this. Jesus is praying for his people. And the specific word that the Bible uses to describe Jesus' present prayers for his church is intercession. Jesus is interceding for his people. Two verses. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Therefore, he, Jesus, is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Because he always lives to intercede for them. Second verse. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. 
Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Now, we don't use the word intercession very much in normal conversation, but the idea of intercession or interceding is actually woven throughout the fabric of our society. So, for example, if you're looking for a new place to live, a flat to buy or one to lease, many times you'll use a broker. And if that broker is any good, they're supposed to be your intercessor. It's their job to fight for your interests, to plead on your behalf, to make your case and get you into that flat to live. That's what an intercessor does. That's what interceding is. Pleading your case, fighting for your interest, making a case on your behalf. And the Bible says that right now, at this moment, that's what Jesus is doing for you. He's at the right hand of God the Father, pleading on your behalf, fighting for your interests, making a case for you. But some of you, as you hear that, you're thinking, wait a second, I have a question. I'm glad you want to ask. And your question is something like this. When Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead, didn't he say it's finished? Didn't he finish the work of salvation? So if he finished the work of salvation, if he fully accomplished the forgiveness of sins, if he defeated death, then what is he making a case for? What is he pleading for? If the work is already done, if it's finished, then what is there to intercede for? It's a good question. It is true that Jesus in his dying and his rising fully accomplished the work of salvation. But, Your experience of that salvation is very much a work in progress. You know that it's possible to believe in something that you haven't fully experienced. We do it all the time. I believe that there's a place in the world called the Maldives. And I believe that a week-long holiday in one of those overwater bungalows would be pretty great. But for me, that's all it is. It's just a belief. It's just an idea. But if you've been to the Maldives and if you stayed in one of those overwater bungalows, you believe in it too, but your belief is a different kind. Your belief is an experienced one. You see, you remember what the sea breeze felt like when it was waking you up in the morning. You remember walking out of your front door and almost falling into crystal clear blue water. And you remember how sad you were when you had to leave. You see, we both believe, but our belief is different because one is just an idea and one has been experienced. For many Christians, the reality of Jesus living and dying and rising is just a set of ideas. And what the intercession of Jesus Christ is all about is to take the truth of the salvation that he already accomplished and to so intercede and plead for you that that truth becomes felt so that the reality of his living and dying and arising becomes more real to you than the air you breathe. And this difference, this gap between what we know in our heads and what we feel in our hearts is one of the reasons why as we go through life, we see such gaps in our spiritual life. You believe, many of you, 
that Jesus on the cross died to forgive your sin. But deep down, in the day-to-day experience of life, you still feel like you don't deserve good things to happen to you because of all the bad things that you've done. Many of you know as an idea that Jesus loves you, but you move through this city with an undercurrent of anxiety about whether other people think of you and whether they accept you. We might believe as an idea that our future is secure, Jesus defeated death, but in the day-to-day of life, you keep dangerously overworking because you think the more money you have, the safer you'll be. There's a gap between what Jesus did and our experience of it. And so right now, at this moment, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, pleading on your behalf, interceding for you, taking the truth of his salvation and applying it to your hearts precisely in the places and in the moments where you're most prone to forget it. That's what Jesus is doing right now. So let me give you a personal example. A couple of years ago, as many of you know, my wife and I were thinking about moving to London to lead this church. And we were at that season of life in a really big crossroads moment. A couple of times in a person's life, you have those big decision moments, right? Where you know that you can do this or you can do that. And the decision you make is going to change the rest of your life. And so we were thinking, do we stay in New York and pursue a ministry opportunity? Do we move to London right in the middle of COVID with a nine-month-old and come and be part of this new wonderful church? And so we were doing all the things that Christians are supposed to do when you're making a big decision. We were praying. We were getting counsel from wise friends. We were having Excel sheets and brainstorming sessions. We're doing the whole deal. And as all that was happening... I was increasingly restless, anxious, and pretty irritable, especially to the people who were closest to me. Because as we were trying to make that big decision, I was living as if God's presence in my life depended on me making the right decision. And if I made the wrong one, then all would be lost. That's what it felt like. And so as we were moving through this season, I was just not in a good place. And then one day, the intercession of Jesus broke through. And Jesus took truth that was already accomplished and made it real to my heart. You see, I was one day praying, saying something to God like, God, you know I want to obey you. You know I'll do whatever you want. Just show me what to do. Make it clear. And God spoke to me. And said, Bijan, the issue is not me showing you what to do. The issue is you learning to believe that I'm with you wherever you go. And what was interesting is I heard God say that to me. I realized that was just a verse from the book of Joshua that I had read dozens of times. But it was just truth in my head. But in that moment, the intercession of Jesus took truth that I knew and it brought it down into my heart. And I had peace. We still had to make a decision. We still had to decide what we were going to do. But I was a little less irritable. I was a little less anxious and restless and able to move forward. Truth I knew becomes real because of the intercession and prayer of Jesus. And that's what he's doing for you right now. Now, 
let me show you second in our sermon what Jesus is praying. Let's hear him praying for us. When Marianne read the text, she read mostly from John 17. John 17 is, the majesty of these verses is hard for me to convey to you. Because this is a prayer of God the Son to God the Father, hours before God the Son dies on the cross to accomplish salvation. I don't have the words to capture the the pathos of this passage. But what I can say is simply this. When someone gets close to the end of their life, they speak about the things that matter most. You have no time for empty words. And so when we read John 17 and we hear Jesus praying for us, what he's doing is revealing what's most on his heart. What he's bringing to God in prayer is the things that matter most to him. And can I tell you, the prayer is 26 verses long, and in 20 of them, he's praying for you. He's praying for his people. Now, this passage, we could spend weeks and weeks studying it, and that would be worth doing. But today, I only have a couple of minutes. And so I want to summarize and show you, as Jesus, at the very end of his life, is bringing his deepest heart before God, his Father, in prayer... Praying for you, praying for his people, there are really two things he's praying about. And they're the same kinds of things that you would pray for the people that you love. He's saying to God, his father, keep them safe and fill them with joy. Keep them safe and give them joy. And I just want to briefly unfold some of those ideas. Because this is what Jesus prays for his people, not just on that day, but every day as he ever lives to pray for us. So first, right now, Jesus is praying for us to be kept safe. Verse 15 of John 17, Jesus prays, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Notice, he doesn't pray that you'd be protected from life's hardships. Jesus must know that hardship by itself is not hazardous to spiritual health. He doesn't pray that you'd be protected from hardship. He prays instead that you'd be protected from the evil one. That's the real danger. The real threat to your soul is what the Bible calls the evil one or sometimes calls the devil. Because the evil one, the enemy of our soul, is hell-bent on destroying your life with God. The evil one has been lying to humanity ever since the Garden of Eden. That's why when Jesus was talking about the devil or the evil one, Jesus called him the father of lies. And so Jesus, as he's about to leave this world in his physical form, he's praying for his church. And right now, in the father's side, he pleads for us and says, God, keep them safe from the lies of the evil one. Because it's the lies of the evil one, whether you're in a time of peace or in a time of hardship, that really can destroy your soul. And so friends, just know, and again, we could talk so much more about this, but briefly today, what I want to say is this, the singular lie of the evil one, the lie that he's been whispering to human beings ever since the Garden of Eden was some variation of this. You can't trust God and he's holding out on you. So you'd be better off taking your life into your own hands. And every time we sin, every time we rebel against God, 
It's because at some level we're believing that lie. And we've said to God, you don't love me. You're not trustworthy. I'm going to do this myself. And that's the lie of the evil one. And so Jesus is pleading and he's saying, God, keep them safe. Protect them from that lie. Protect them from the evil one. But not just keep them safe. Jesus is also praying that you would be filled with joy. Look with me if you have the passage open in verse 13. Verse 13 is literally the center of Jesus' prayer. It's the heart of the prayer. And Jesus says this, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they, my people, may have the full measure of my joy within them. Jesus is praying for your joy. Now, joy is awfully hard to define. Sometimes joy looks like laughing or Sounds like laughing. Sometimes it looks like a smile. But most of the time, real joy feels like gratitude. Real joy is a soul fully alive. It's a person who's in awe that the world keeps spinning and they get to be a part of it. That's the kind of joy that Jesus is praying for you to experience. But what's interesting about Jesus' prayer for your joy is do you remember the first verse that we read today? Jesus says, in this world, you're going to have trouble. And so Jesus' prayer both acknowledges your life is going to be really hard, and yet I'm praying for you to have deep joy. And that's attention, isn't it? And Jesus must know something about how it's possible to have joy even in the midst of sorrow. And the reason Christians can is because of what it says right there in the text. Jesus is praying that the full measure of his joy would be within you. You see, Jesus' joy is cross-shaped. It's a very particular kind of joy. Let me read to you a couple of verses from chapter 16. Again, this is all the same night. Jesus is talking to his disciples. Let me read to you just a few verses. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. And then he says, verse 21, A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child has been born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again. And no one will take away your joy. Maybe like you, often when I'm experiencing hardship and suffering in my life, I come to God with some kind of prayer like this. God, you know what I'm going through. You know this is terrible. I'm very unhappy. Please take this away and give me joy. And do you know what God says? <laughs> no. I'm not going to take away your sorrow and give you joy. I'm going to do you one better. I'm going to turn your sorrow into joy. And in that word is all the difference in the world. And Jesus actually gives us the example. He says, when a woman is giving birth, there's pain. There's incredible pain. But when the child is born, she forgets the pain, not actually, but comparatively. For the joy that that child has been born. God doesn't take... The thing that was causing the pain becomes the thing that produces the joy. 
And Jesus is not just talking in the abstract. He's talking about what he's about to do in going to the cross. And he's saying, you're going to be filled with sorrow because I, your friend, and the person that you thought was going to save you, I'm going to be dying like a common criminal on this cross. And you're going to think all hope was lost. And that profound sorrow is going to literally be turned into the thing that brings you tremendous world-changing joy. Now, I'm not saying that behind every cloud there's a rainbow. At the end of every tunnel there's a light. I'm not saying nonsense like that. What I am saying is that somehow at the heart of the universe, joy is possible even in the midst of the most profound suffering because God, because he did it on the cross, is able to take any sorrow and turn it into joy. And the only reason we know that is because he did it in Jesus. That we don't get resurrection without death. You don't get Easter without Good Friday. And that's what God does in Christ in the gospel. So Jesus is praying that as you go through life and as you face even tremendous sorrow, you would have joy. Because he and he alone is able to take all sorrows and make them untrue and turn all sorrows into joy. And that's what he's praying for. God, keep them safe and fill them with joy. So just a couple of thoughts now. How do we respond? Jesus is praying for you at this moment. Take this truth that I've accomplished. Make it real in their life. He prays to the Father. So how do we respond? Three things. First, There's something for us to realize. One of the challenges when you talk about prayer is people, and many of us are pragmatic, we're Westerners, we're consumers, we're Amazon primers, you know. We want things to happen and to happen fast. And so one of the questions that people ask when you talk about prayer is like, how do I know it's working? Like, is it actually doing anything? And even as I talk about Jesus praying for us, you're like, well, that's great. He's praying for me, but so what? Like, is it doing anything at all? Here's what I want you to realize this morning. Every time there's even an inch of growth in your spiritual life, it's because Jesus is praying for you. Every instant that you have an impulse to move towards God and away from self... It's because Jesus is praying for you. If my words today are doing anything to encourage you or to help you, it's not because my words are eloquent. It's because Jesus is praying for you. If on some Sunday you come into worship and you just feel kind of dull, maybe a little hopeless, and then as the band is up here leading and singing, a certain song just reaches down into the darkness of your soul and it's like a light bulb is turned on and inexplicably you feel alive and full of hope. It's not because the band is great, even though they are. It's because Jesus is praying for you. If you have a moment in your life in which you're able to say no to something that you really want, but you know that having it is going to numb your taste buds to the things of God, you were able to say no because Jesus is praying for you. For some of you, the idea of being in community is paralyzing. Deep social anxiety. 
And yet if you're able to show up in person to a church or maybe meet someone for a coffee or go to a small group, that wasn't just because you had courage. It's because Jesus is pleading on your behalf. You see, the question is not, is prayer working? The question is actually, do we have eyes to see how much prayer is working? That at every moment, at every instant of our life, all the good we experience is the result of the fact that Jesus is pleading for you. Second way to respond, rest, rest. For those of you who are with us on the weekend away, or for all of us as you take your booklets, one of the things that we're talking about as a church is the importance of spiritual practices, the things that we do that bring us closer to God. But the main thing I want to say to you this weekend is all of your doing rests in the fact that Jesus is doing something for you. Another way to say it is like this. There's an old hymn. It's a wonderful hymn. What a friend we have in Jesus. I'm not going to sing it because none of you deserve that. But one of the stanzas of that hymn says this. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. What needless pain we bear all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Now, there's a lot of truth in that. I suspect that our lives would be a lot more filled with peace if we prayed a lot more than we do. But think with me again about those lines. Are they not incredibly burdensome? What peace we forfeit, what pain we bear because we don't carry everything to God in prayer? If we're honest, most of us struggle to carry anything to God in prayer. And if my hope in this life depends on me carrying everything to God in prayer, that's not much hope at all. But what if we change the sentiment and recognize that the peace we want and the healing we need comes to us because Jesus is carrying us to God in prayer? And we learn to rest in that. We learn to rest in the fact that Jesus is the one who's pleading for us. And all of our praying and all of our spiritual practices depends not on our ability to get to God, but on the fact that Jesus has already come to us. Well, then we can rest. F.D. Bruner, writing about this very truth, says this. We Christians are being prayed for by a person who is very good at prayer. We are not on our own. So may we relax a little bit and come to Jesus' party. You can rest because Jesus is praying for you. Third, finally, something to realize, something to rest in. And third, surrender. As scary as it is, the most restful thing that you can do is surrender your life, your hopes, your fears, your dreams, everything to Jesus. The most liberating and terrifying prayer that a person can ever pray is something like, not my will, but yours be done. And for many of you today, resting in Jesus means surrender. It means giving up your need for control it means giving up your need for certainty. And it means saying to God, not my will, but yours be done. That's an awfully scary prayer to pray. 
So the question as we close is, what's going to give us the confidence we need to pray it? And the answer is, Jesus already prayed it for you. John 17 wasn't the only prayer of Jesus on the night before his death. But a little bit later after this passage, Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And as he was there in the garden, he kneeled down. And he was filled with anxiety and burden. Literally sweating drops of blood because of the stress. And Jesus says to God, his father, if it's possible, take this cup away from me. Humanly speaking, Jesus didn't want to go to the cross. He didn't want to experience the pain of separation from his father and all the pain and agony of bearing the sin of humanity on his shoulders. If it's possible, take this cup from me. And then Jesus said, yet not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus, the maker of every star in the sky, surrendered himself to death on the cross for you. So this morning, you can surrender your life to him because he already surrendered his life for you. Cry out to him, surrender to him, the one who ever lives to pray for us. Let's pray. Our great God, as we now come to this time of response, we pray that this would be a powerful and a meaningful time of realizing what you're doing for us right now, of resting in it, and of surrendering to you. So be with us during this time of response, and as we come to your table, we pray this now in Jesus' name and for his glory. Everyone said? Amen.